Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Word of God for our special consideration this morning is our first reading, Acts 17, verses 16 through 34, as is printed in your bulletin. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, In the portion of our reading from Acts 17 that I read earlier, Luke described the people of Athens as enjoying doing nothing more than telling or listening to something new. And when the council of the Areopagus asked Paul to share his something new, they were curious because he seemed to them to be bringing in some ideas that are strange to our ears. They wanted to hear more because they wanted to know what it all meant, They were fixated on the strange and new. That kind of fixation is not unfamiliar to us. The entire fashion industry, for instance, is built on it, and we see it also in the tech world, in entertainment, in the arts, and especially in the the daily, even hourly cycle of what's hot on social media. But how about religion. Are people in our society always interested in the strange and new where religion is concerned? You know, some would say that that explains why so many people today are rejecting Christianity, or at least the the traditional and biblical versions of it, in favor of novel faiths and modern ideas. Old-time religion just doesn't seem relevant to a lot of our contemporaries. But a more accurate statement would be that people in our society are always interested in what they think is strange and new. Time after time, the ideas that they are attracted to turn out on inspection to be nothing more than repackaged ideas that have been around for a long time and and often tried and found wanting before. This is as true in religion as it is in things like politics and economics. So where does that leave the message of Christ? Is it new or old? Is Christianity strange or is it so familiar it has bred contempt? One might think that's a question you don't even need to ask about a religion that's been around for some 2,000 years already. But it is helpful to go back to the early years, when it was fresh on the intellectual and theological scene, to really understand. Athens had a long-standing reputation as a center for culture, knowledge, and philosophy already when, when Paul visited there. Many of the monuments, buildings, and altars he would have seen as he toured around the city would have stood already for generations. So we might find a modern comparison to a university city like Oxford or Cambridge useful. It was a place with a very long history of of learning new things and engaging new ideas, even as it, with one era's revolutionary thoughts becoming the next era's old hat. It would have made it sometimes difficult to determine whether whether what someone was teaching was something they had encountered before and left in the past, or something fresh that they had really never seen before. Which is why, when 
Paul arrived there and did what he always did, talk to everyone he could about Jesus, it wasn't too long before he was called to the assembly of intellectuals that met on Mars Hill, the Areopagus, to explain this new teaching about Jesus and the resurrection that he was talking about. Then Paul stood up in front of the council of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking around and carefully observing your objects of worship, I even found an altar on which had been inscribed, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as unknown, this is what I am going to proclaim to you. It's hard to say whether calling them very religious in every way was a compliment or a criticism. It was likely, I think, intended as both. A compliment that as a people they were deeply interested in spiritual things. That was good. A criticism in that they busied themselves with religious activities and observances that were shallow and ultimately meaningless. Yet this history of religiosity gave Paul a point of contact for for sharing with them something more real and more meaningful than all of their abundance of rites and altars and sacrifices and temples could ever provide. The apostle had discovered in his tour of their city an altar that was not dedicated to Zeus or Athena or Hermes or even to Ares or Ashtoreth or Isis. And whether it was an attempt to kind of cover their bases in the case they'd overlooked a god that they'd never heard of, or in a legitimate effort to, to honor some god whose name they did not know, whatever the reason had been, they had made an altar to an unknown God. Now this, this was right in Paul's wheelhouse. He was all about making known what had previously been unknown, about sharing the good news, the truth, about God's plan to save all people from sin and death through his Son, Jesus Christ. So he goes on. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, since he himself gives all people life and breath and everything they have. From one man he made every nation of mankind to live over the entire face of the earth. He determined the appointed times and the boundaries where they would live. He did this so they would seek God and perhaps reach out for him and find him, even though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, indeed, we are also his offspring. Now this would have been a fascinating connection of the old and the new for his Athenian audience. On the one hand, Paul talked about the most ancient of truths, the creation of the world and everything and everyone in it. On the other hand, the idea that 
the Creator not only made people with a purpose, but took an interest in them and their lives, desiring a relationship with them, that would have been news. Their gods were not like that at all. But Paul then reached back into their own Greek intellectual and and literary history to show that this idea was not really new, just forgotten and little understood. But in every way that really mattered, what Paul shared with them was really new because it was new to them. The idea of a creator God was nothing revolutionary. But in most every mythology the Athenians would have been familiar with, the creator made the world and then stepped back, leaving lesser gods like the gods of Mount Olympus, Zeus and Hera and all of them, to manage the affairs of the world and to deal with its people. The God that Paul was preaching would have been strange indeed to the Athenians, not only for being active in his, uh, in his world after his creating work, but for being invested in each and every person, arranging things and times and places so that they would recognize their need for him, long for him, look for him, and find him. And then Paul began to tell them what difference this truth about the one true God should make. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by human skill and planning. Imagine telling the proud citizens and leaders of a city filled to the brim with idols carved of rock and made of precious metals, that all of those things, all of those works of their hands that attempt to capture the essence of divine are worthless and foolish. Undoubtedly, there were some in the audience that day who who already doubted that those idols represented anything real. But here, this strange Jewish preacher was stripping away all of the lies that the pagan faithful told themselves about their religion. It was strange and it was new that the created cannot define their creator. It only works the other way around. But Paul was not there in Athens to shame them for not understanding this. Instead, he wanted them to know it and to move beyond it to knowledge of not just the true God, but of their own salvation in his Son. Although God overlooked the times of ignorance, He is now commanding all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he appointed. He provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul knew he had their attention, but probably not for long. He was not going to waste time arguing or defending the new old truths that he had just proclaimed 
when salvation was at stake. So, having addressed their minds, he then went straight for their hearts. Repent, he told them. The things that you might not have known before can no longer be your excuse. Repent, because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming not just for those who knew or worshipped the true God, but for the entire world. Confess your sins. Turn to the Lord of grace and put your trust in Him for salvation. And then Paul made very clear that this was not just an intellectual argument nor some kind of rehash of prior spiritualities. He proclaimed that the Savior that God had sent the world had been raised from the dead. This, this was strange and new to the Greeks because neither their mythology nor their philosophy provided for resurrection. For them, what mattered was not matter, but spirit. They had a concept of life after death, but leaving the body behind was a feature, not a bug. So the preaching of resurrection, and even more, the resurrection of a Savior as evidence of God's intentions to save those who repent and believe, This was a radical, boundary-shifting, worldview-shocking message. And it was necessary that Paul preach it. It would have been a, a defective and insufficient gospel if he had neglected to preach a risen Christ. But it opened the door for those who were inclined to skepticism and unbelief. When they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some of them started to scoff. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. So Paul left the council. However, some men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council of the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, as well as others with them. So, The Holy Spirit gave success to Paul's preaching in Athens, but not a lot. Though there was interest in hearing about something strange and new, the gospel of Jesus Christ, there was a lot less interest in letting that good news actually change anything in their hearts, minds, or lives. And that response to the message of Christ crucified and risen for sinners Sounds familiar to us today. The main difference is that those who scoff at Christianity now assume that they are rejecting an old, tired, and irrelevant religion instead of a strange and new one. But the reality is that the gospel and all the teachings of God's Word are always strange and new. Even after two millennia, the message is still fresh and vital. And it is shocking good news for everyone who has not yet heard and believed it. To the guilty heart that assumes, often with despair, 
that it is up to the individual to make up for all of his or her sins, and that entry to eternal life will take a lot of work and perhaps never be enough. It is always strange and new to hear. As Peter put it in our second reading today, Christ also suffered once for sins in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. To the proud and self-righteous heart that looks to the individual's good works, moral living, acts of charity, social acceptability, looks at those as their ticket to paradise, it is always strange and new to hear that their record is actually not righteous at all, that it is all worthless, and that they are sinners who need to repent and turn to Jesus because He is the only way, truth, and life. To the follower of other religions or philosophies, or even to agnostics or atheists, it is strange and new to hear that there is one God the creator of all things and all people, and that we are responsible to him for our sins, and that it is then even more strange and new to hear that this almighty deity loves us and has done everything for us to save us from our sins and bring us to heaven with him by sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to the cross. In our place. To modern day Epicureans who are only about enjoyment and finding pleasure in the world, it is new and strange to hear that we can have the ultimate of pleasures and bliss in heaven. And that it is God's gift to us and not something we have to grab at to enjoy. To the modern day Stoic who suffers in silence, believing it is the way of life. It is new and strange to learn that Christ gives meaning to our sufferings and the hope of heaven beyond. And even to the longtime church member, it is, is strange and new to hear the truths of the gospel over and over, new again, over again, strange again, to, to receive the sacraments even to look and remember the waters of baptism, to take Christ's body and blood in the Lord's Supper. Still strange and new because we still sin, because we still have a sinful nature that insists it knows better than God. And guilt and grief and pride and despair are still part of our lives. So the news of God's grace in Christ, of His free and full forgiveness, of eternal life and forgiveness, of His promises, protection and perfection, all of it is needed daily and is delivered fresh in the gospel. Always strange and new. And if we take a less individual view of our faith, it is still true that the Christianity taught in the Bible is always strange and new. As much as many might treat it as the same old, same old, when it is taught and lived in its full truth, purity, and relevance, it always stands counter to, in conflict with the culture, not within it, not beneath it. Christianity is never 
just another religion like all the rest because its claims and truths set it apart and contradict every other claim to spiritual truth. Just because people think they have heard it all before doesn't mean they actually have. To reject the message of Christ crucified and risen as as old hat or yesterday's news is actually to choose ignorance over understanding. Yes, the actual information in the Bible and the actual truths of creation and God's plan of salvation have been around for a very long time. But since not every person has been around for a long time, and since every situation is new and different, the gospel is fresh, even strange, every time to everyone who hears it new. There is, however, something about the gospel that we might call old, that not everyone is interested in knowing and believing it. Just as was the case with Paul in Athens, and was the case with Jesus when he preached in person to the multitudes, was the case with so many of his prophets and apostles. So it has always been and will be until Christ returns as he promised and and, and as Paul warned his audience, only some believe. Many others choose unbelief in effect choose their own damnation. And in this, we might find it surprising when we consider how good is the good news that so many reject for no good reason. But since we know what the sinful heart is like, we can't really call it strange. Well, what does, what does all this mean? What difference does it make for us now, today, and, and tomorrow? Understanding this about our faith, about Christianity, about what's in the Bible, about the gospel that we treasure, that it is always strange and new. This, this gives us a new confidence and, and eagerness. The message that we have to share whether it is as, is as individuals who, who witness to others that we encounter in our lives, or whether it is how we share the gospel as a church that sends missionaries out into our other parts of our country and into the parts of the world where we ourselves cannot go. This message is not old or tired or irrelevant. It is, in fact, the most important and most vital news of hope that anyone can ever hear. And so we want, and we work, and we pray to always be ready with this gospel that is always strange and new, to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks us, to give a reason for the hope that is in us. As Peter said in our second reading. Now, whether someone believes our message or not, that isn't up to us. So we leave that to the Holy Spirit. We put it in God's capable hands. And we just give thanks 
that we have the privilege of knowing. Knowing the true God, of being loved by the God in whom we live and move and have our being. The God who sent his Son to save us and all the world. And so, of course, dear Christians, one and all, we rejoice. And then, then we publish the glad tidings, tidings of peace, tidings of Jesus, tidings of redemption and release. This we do. Alleluia. Amen. Please rise. The peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.